Well, that's the same thing. If you connect, if, you know. So you're one of the 9,000, right? Right. And I guess my mom might be, you know, the other 90, you know, 85 or something, 100. You know. That was not true. Well, let's pray. We'll get started. My Bruins were ahead 3 nothing going into the third period. If they win it, they win the Stanley Cup first time in 20-something years, I think it is. So we Boston fans are very excited. Sorry, Jack. Well, it's a story. It's a story. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't exactly hate the Yankees. Right. Let's pray we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this evening, the time we have together to look at your word and uh, to investigate it. So we pray that your spirit would guide and direct us as we peer into it. And may you um, give us a sense of how all of its parts uh, fit together in a marvelous way. So guide and direct us now, we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, um, where are we? We are on paragraph, in the Harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson, we're on paragraph... 63, which is found on page 63. If you don't have the harmony, uh, we're looking at a couple of passages, and now it starts getting a little complicated because they're, um, we're looking at three passages together, Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 46, and Luke chapter 8. And so in our outline, where we are at is, if you have your outlines with you, is entitled The Controversy Over the King. And what Yeshua does at this juncture is he starts giving revelation in view of the national rejection of himself as Israel's Messiah, which occurred in Matthew chapter 12. So we're sort of building on some things we've already talked about. We can't go back and uh, investigate that to the degree to which we did before. But you need to keep in mind the unpardonable sin is a very unique sin that was relevant to the Jewish people living at the time that the Messiah was manifesting himself as Israel's Messiah and their rejection of him as such. And that rejection took place by the Jewish leadership at that time that had observed Yeshua healing a man who was both born blind and uh, incapable of speaking. The rabbis, uh, we can't go into all of it here, but the rabbis had determined had taught that when the Messiah would come, he would be one who could heal someone who was not able to speak because the method by which the rabbis taught demons would be cast out required one to have the name of the evil spirit. When an evil spirit caused one not to be able to speak, they could not get the name of the uh, demon and thus could not cast out spirits that caused muteness. So the rabbis taught when the Messiah will come, he will not have to have the name of the demon to do that. And so therefore, he could just cast out a spirit uh, simply by his power. So in Matthew chapter 12, when he does that, the crowds then say to the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, they say, is this not the son of David? They don't ask, is this the son of David? They say, surely this is the son of David. So now the Jewish leaders are forced to make a decision. Either they affirm him to be the Messiah, in which case they have to submit 
their own uh, leadership and their own understanding of God's Word to him and his teachings, or they have to reject what he had done, but then in rejecting what he had done and his claims, they have to come up with another explanation. So what the Jewish leaders decide is they're not going to acknowledge Yeshua as the Messiah because, remember, he opposes their understanding of the law. They do not reject him because he doesn't deliver them from Rome. That's what you oftentimes hear. The reason why the Jewish leaders reject him is because he's unwilling to accept their understanding of the law. And thus they wanted authority over the people and over the understanding of God's word. And Yeshua time and time again, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, says they are interpreting God's word wrongly. They are the blind leading the blind. And thus both will fall into the ditch. So on this occasion, Yeshua heals a man as the rabbi said the Messiah would so heal an individual. Rather than to acknowledge him as the Messiah, they reject him. But then they have to explain the miracle and they explain the miracle by saying he had cast out this spirit by the power of the evil one when they say that they are in effect rejecting Yeshua as the Messiah as a nation that doesn't mean individual Jews cannot accept him certainly they do the disciples do and others do in the book of Acts many Jewish people come to faith and continue to do so But what's going on in Matthew chapter 12 is there is a national sin that takes place for which there is no turning back or relinquishing of the judgment. There are other instances like this. For example, when the Jewish people come out of Egypt and the spies are sent into the promised land, ten of them come back with an evil report. When a riot nearly breaks out and Aaron and Moses' life is at stake because Two of them said, Joshua and Caleb, we can take the land, and the other said we couldn't. God then determines judgment will strike the nation of Israel. And there is no rescinding that judgment. When after that announcement of judgment is made, some of the Jewish people say, oh, we made a mistake, and they attempt to go into the land to take it. And as a result, they are destroyed. The point is, once God determines there's a judgment, the judgment is coming. And so that generation that came out of Egypt did not enter the promised land. And there was no way anyone from that generation would enter the promised land, no matter how righteous they might be. Even Moses himself cannot enter the promised land. Now Joshua and Caleb do because they had exhibited faith at the point at which they, that God had told them to seize the land. That's just an illustration of a national sin or a sin that has national consequences that affects everyone in the nation, whether righteous or unrighteous. Another experience is the judgment in Babylon. The entire nation goes into judgment for 70 years and the times of the Gentiles are inaugurated. Despite the righteous men like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel or Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, they all go into exile or die despite the fact that they are righteous. The same kind of thing is happening here in Matthew chapter 12. Judgment will strike the nation. No matter matter that there are righteous ones in the nation, they will be affected by that judgment that will hit. And that judgment that the Lord pronounces upon them takes place in 70 AD when Jerusalem is overwhelmed, the temple is destroyed, and the Jewish people are scattered and continue to exhibit that scattering into the present day. Even though... 
The nation of Israel has been reestablished, and even though a large number of our people are back in the land, many of our people are not in the land. Why is that? Because of the judgment resulting from the decision of the leaders in Matthew 12 to reject Yeshua as the Messiah. Now, those are some of the, the consequences that are on a very large scale, but there are other consequences we're going to talk about in these paragraphs that are coming up. In paragraph 63, page 63, Mark 3, Matthew 12, and Luke 8, there is the introduction before we get into the parables. And the parables are important because of their relationship to the unpardonable sin. That is that national rejection of Israel as the Messiah and the necessary consequence of judgment on the people of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the temple, and the dispersion, dispersing of the Jewish people through the four corners of the earth. So in paragraph 63, this paragraph actually belongs in the middle of paragraph 64 because 64 are the parables, and there are two kinds of parables. There are the public parables and there are the private parables. The public parables and the private parables uh, are seen by uh, on page 67 where you have the parable of the seed growing of itself which is recorded in Matthew 26 uh, chapter 4 verse 26 through 29. That's where Luke 8 verses 19 through 21 actually ought to fit in. Remember, Luke's gospel is written so as to provide a chronological sequence of the life of Messiah. So when there's a question about what events happened when, we ought to give priority to Luke. Now, A.T. Robertson, in his harmony, does not do that here. If you look at paragraph 63, you'll see Luke 8, 19 to 21. But then if you turn to paragraph 64, you'll see it begins with Luke 8, verse 4. So he takes it out of order. But where Luke 8.19 belongs is right after Luke 8.18, which is the end of paragraph, which is the end of uh, the first parable, the parable of the sower, and before the parable of the seed that grows its, by itself. So that's where that this section ought to be inserted chronologically. But despite that, uh, we'll just take a look at the paragraph as it appears where it is. But just so that you know, you make a note of it, it actually belongs later uh, in the account. But in this paragraph, Yeshua will repudiate all, this is paragraph 63, he repudiates all earthly relationships and chooses to go with only spiritual ones. He re repudiates earthly ties and accepts spiritual ones in light, keep this in mind, of the unpardonable sin. Everything now is going to flow from that moment. And so what's going on here is much like what happens in the prophet Hosea. In the prophet Hosea, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he speaks about Israel as not being his people, but at a later time shall be his people. Now that doesn't mean Israel is ever rejected. Israel is always the people of God covenantally. But they do not always receive the benefits of the covenant if they are disobedient. So just like the covenant promises Israel to enter the promised land and possess it, when they were disobedient, they didn't possess it at that time. So they didn't receive the benefits. The land belonged to Israel even when they failed to acquire it when they came out of Egypt. It's still theirs. But disobedience can keep one from experiencing the benefits of the covenant. 
And so similarly, what's happening here is the benefits of Messiah being among his people is rejected or rescinded because of their failure to be obedient to him. He's still their Messiah. He's still a member of their nation. They are still his people, but they don't receive the benefits of all those things because of their lack of obedience. Disobedience can deprive Israel of the benefits that God promises them, and that's what's happening here. So in a way, Messiah is illustrating that by uh, uh, distancing himself from earthly or physical relationships to emphasize those spiritual attachments. So take a look, for example, at uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 33. They say that your brothers and sisters, your brethren are waiting for you. And verse 33 says, who is my mother and who is my brethren? If you look at Matthew's gospel, it says, behold, your mother and your brethren stand without, verse 47, seeking to speak to you. Yeshua says, who is my mother? Who are my brethren? He stretched forth his hands to his disciples. And he said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and mother. His point is, in light of the unpardonable sin where he was rejected by his earthly nation, he's now turning his attention to those that will receive him. So he's not saying we should deprecate our physical families. We have to see it in context. It's always important that when you look at God's word, that it's understood in the context of the events that are unfolding. So what's unfolded? Israel as a nation has just rejected him. So then when they say to him, hey, your brother and mother and brothers are out there, he's reinforced. He's not denying that they're his brothers and sisters and that Mary's his mother. Mary loves him and she's a believer, right? But what he's trying to emphasize, what he's trying to illustrate is that his attachment to the nation has been severed like in the book of Hosea. Those where God makes reference to Israel is lo ami. They are not my people. Well, they are his people. But he's making a, a theological statement based on their lack of faithfulness. Messiah is doing the same thing here. He's saying, in light of my rejection by the nation, who are my brothers and sisters? They're those who accept me, not those who reject me. And this is how he illustrates it and emphasizes that point. Now, as a result of the unpardonable sin, Israel's rejection of Yeshua as Messiah, there's a change at this point in Messiah's ministry. And it's very important to, to, uh, to take note of this because a lot of errors have crept into uh, theology for failure to recognize what's happening here. And a lot of times, preachers will preach on passages from the Gospels without putting them into context, and, and thus it's not rightly understood. So, as a result of the unpardonable sin, that Matthew 12 passage, you have to always keep that in mind. There's a change in the Messiah's ministry. And the change occurs with re- in four important areas. Here they are, you can write it down. Number one, there's a change with respect to signs. Let me just make the statement, then I'll try to illustrate it. The signs that Yeshua does goes from the nation to the disciples themselves. In other words, up until this point, up until Matthew 12, 
sign miracles such as the healing of this man that couldn't speak, the healing of a man born blind, the healing of a leper, miracles that the, that the rabbis themselves said the Messiah would do. These sign miracles in the past were given to demonstrate to Israel that he was the Messiah and to get the people to make a decision either for or against them. But now the decision is made. And Israel as a nation, represented by their leaders, has made the decision. He's not our Messiah. Now that the decision is made, the reason for his signs changes. So in Matthew chapter 12, he had said, no more signs will be given except the sign of Jonah, which is the sign of resurrection. So now when he does miracles... What will they be for? They're no longer to try to demonstrate he's the Messiah. He's already done that. And they made their decision. He's not the Messiah. And there's no going back nationally. Individuals may change their minds. But nationally, he's not doing his miracles for that purpose. Why is he doing it? He's doing them to train his disciples. What is he training them for? He's training them for the ministry he will car- they will carry on as they obey his commission to go into all the world. Where do we see this training manifest itself? In the book of Acts. And thus when you study the book of Acts, what you're actually studying is, or what you're observing is, what the disciples learned by the miracles Yeshua did to train them after Israel's rejection of him as their Messiah. So up until Matthew 12, he was doing them so that people would say, wow, is this the Messiah? Is this not the son of David? Now they made their decision. He's not. So why does he keep doing miracles? Well, no longer to convince them. It's too late. The judgment is set. They're not going into the promised land, and they're not going to see the messianic kingdom. So why does he do the miracles? To train his disciples so that they will be faithful in carrying on the message and the work that he entrusts to them. Secondly, there's a change with regard to signs, but there's a change in regard to the miracles that he will do. In the past, the miracle, or now, the miracles go from the masses without faith to individuals with faith. In other words, prior to Matthew 12, you did not have to believe in the Messiah for him to do a miracle for you. And we see this occur. For example... Uh, we saw that the man who was healed, who couldn't walk for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda, um, when he was healed and he went and told everyone that uh, he, was, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't walk, when they asked him who did this, he said he didn't know. When they asked him uh, how he did it, he said he didn't know. He just was told to get up and walk. And when he walked, the guy was gone. The person didn't say, believe on me and you will walk. He just said, rise up and walk. Up until Matthew chapter 12, you do not have to believe in the Messiah for him to do good things for you, for him to heal you. But after Matthew 12, they have to have faith. And the second thing that happens after Matthew 12 in connection with his miracles, before Matthew 12, after someone was healed, and they didn't even have to believe in him, they didn't even have to know he did anything, He tells them to uh, make it known what God has done for them. 
After Matthew 12, he always tells them, don't tell anyone. So prior to Matthew 12, there's not only are the miracles done without faith, and after Matthew 12, he tells them they must believe. And also with regard to his miracles before Matthew 12, he tells them, let the world know what God has done for you. After Matthew 12, that's when you read he, he tells them to be, not to tell a soul, to be silent. So the miracle prior to Matthew 12 was to get the people to believe. But now that the nation has decided he's not the Messiah, he performs the miracles only by responding to the needs of individuals. And he requires them to have faith. Before Matthew chapter 12, he tells them to uh, go and proclaim what God had done. After Matthew 12, he always tells them, do not tell anyone. So there's a change in Messiah's ministry from the signs. There's a change in regard to the miracles he does. There's a change with respect to his message. Prior to Matthew 12, he proclaimed his Messiahship. After Matthew 12, he's silent about his Messiahship. Until Matthew 12, Yeshua went from city to city, village to village, synagogue to synagogue. He proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. After this point, he forbids the apostles, the disciples, from telling anyone who he is until Matthew 28, when he says, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. And the fourth thing that's different, different with regard to the signs, different with regard to miracles, different with regard to his message, and there's a difference regarding his teaching method. Prior to Matthew 12, his teaching is clear. So clear that the people say, this is one who teaches with authority. He is not like the scribes and Pharisees. He teaches different than them. After Matthew 12, he only teaches in parables. And when he teaches in parables, no one understands him. And he says, when he's asked, why does he teach in parables? He says, so that they would not understand. But those who believe, they will understand. So Matthew 12 is a critical moment in the life of Messiah. And if one is going to preach or teach on the Gospels, you must take note of that in order to understand why these changes take place. They happen purposefully because Israel has rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. So from now, no further light is given to Israel because of their national uh, rejection. So the unpardonable sin set the stage for four things. And here they are. Number one, it sets the stage for the second half of Yeshua's ministry. First half, he's proclaiming himself. And now the decision is made. The second half, he's training the twelve. And he'll meet needs on the basis of faith in him. Secondly, it sets the stage for the events that come up in the book of Acts. Why does the book of Acts exist? Because Israel has rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. Third, and why the disciples bring the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Thirdly, it sets the stage for a new entity that the Lord would create, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, the body of Messiah. And lastly, it actually sets the stage for Jewish history for the next 2,000 years. Israel is scattered. Israel is in a state of unbelief. All 
do to Matthew chapter 12. So Matthew 12, that moment, is the most important moment to understand in the life of Messiah. Maybe most important is overstating. You know, you think about the death of Messiah, the resurrection. Maybe those are the most important moments. But in light, for its historical understanding in light of its Jewish context, Matthew 12 is of critical concern. Now, if you turn to Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 8, Mark 4, or in your um, harmonies, page 64, paragraph 64. Now what happens is Yeshua begins to give re- revelation in view of his rejection by the nation. And what he does in this section we're going to look at tonight is he begins to define the course of God's kingdom program in the present age in light of this national rejection. So we'll talk a little bit about what is understood by the kingdom. So looking at Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, First of all, notice he says, On that day went Yeshua out of the house and he sat by the seaside. On what day? Well, the day that that just preceded this, which was the day of his national rejection. So on that day, the day the unpardonable sin was committed, Yeshua then begins for the first time to teach in parables. He begins to teach in parables precisely because the unpardonable sin and his rejection by the leaders representing the nation has occurred. In Matthew chapter 13, um, verse 10, his own disciples ask him, why do you speak in parables? The question is raised because he's never done this before. Why are you doing this now? Well, he's doing it now because of the unpardonable sin. And his ministry has changed from what it is. So he's going to teach in parables. What is a parable? A parable is taking an analogy from everyday life and experience and teaching an ethical or moral or spiritual truth based upon it. So a parable is taking an analogy from everyday life and experience a practice, and through that practice or that experience, you teach an ethical, moral, or spiritual truth. Now, there are four types of parables. There, is, there are what are referred to as similes. That is making an analogy based on similar ideas, things that we're aware of. For example, he says, I am sending you as sheep among wolves. So it's a simile. So just as sheep struggle and experience conflict among wolves, there's fear and possible death, he's saying that's how it will be for you when you go into the world and proclaim the good news. I'm sending you. So we we should not be surprised when missionaries go, you know, and we say, how could these tribes teach, you know, treat these people that way? Yeshua said, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. So the challenge of bringing our faith into the world and in his context among his, their own people will be a, uh, a challenging one and a dangerous one. A second type of parables that are used uh, are metaphors. So for example, when he says, I am the door. 
I am the bread of life. That's a metaphor. He's not a literal door. He's not a literal loaf. He wasn't really a literal shepherd. These are metaphors that are meant to communicate ideas. So he says, I'm the good shepherd. He's a nurturer. When he says that I am the, I am the door, he's the means by which we can have access to God. When he says, I am the bread of life, he is our sustenance. He is the, uh, our, our nourishment and the means by which we can experience life in its fullness. So there are similes. There are metaphors utilizing similes, utilizing metaphors. There are also parables that are referred to as similitudes. So similitude would be like a reference to an event in everyday life applied to a spiritual truth. So it's, he might say it's, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who puts leaven into dough. You know, it's a similitude. So you see this uh, uh, ex- moment in experience and he's drawing an analogy to it. And let me just mention one last one and then Mitch, maybe you can help with that. And sometimes parables are stories, whether true or not. For example, uh, the story or the, the, the account of the Good Samaritan is a story and probably a true event. Whereas the story of the prodigal son is probably a parable. Well, we're going to t- we're going to talk about what he means by the kingdom of heaven in, in a moment here. So let me just mo- move into that realm is where we're where we're headed. But there are three specific reasons for teaching through parables that Yeshua tells us, and you find this in Matthew chapter thirteen, beginning at verse ten. The disciples ask him, "Why do you teach in parables?" And he says. In verse 11 and 12, why do you speak in parables? And he said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. So first, he teaches in parables for the disciples, it will be for the purpose to illustrate the truths he has said and the truths he is communicating. The second reason, he says, but for the masses of people, it will be to hide the truth from them. You see that in Matthew 13 verse 12 and the beginning of verse 14. He says, For whoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have abundance. Those that exercise faith in him, that's, just talk, that's what he's talking about, having. It doesn't mean accumulating a lot of wealth. He means those that have, that is, those that have accepted me, re- received me, and have acknowledged me. They're going to have more and more and more. They're going to understand more and more of the word. They're going to understand more and more of my teachings. And they will find joy and life in them. But, he says, whoever has not, those who have rejected me, those who do not acknowledge me, he says, from him shall be taken away even what he has. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they see not, hearing they hear not, and neither do they understand. So he teaches in parables so that the masses will not understand the truth. Those that will understand the truth will be a small remnant. Why would he do that? Because Israel has rejected him as the Messiah, Matthew 12, and judgment is set. 
just like you have to keep in mind, just like the Jewish people coming out of Egypt. Why didn't he let them go into the promised land after they realized how foolish they were for not trusting him? Because he had already pronounced the judgment. The judgment is set. It's not going to be just turned away because we would prefer to go in the land now rather than not. We have to trust God when he calls upon us to trust him. And because Israel refused, they're not going in the land. Because when the Messiah comes, Israel rejected him by its leadership, representing the nation, they're not going to have. So when Jewish people oftentimes say to us, look, if Jesus is the Messiah, how come so many of our people don't believe? The answer is because our people rejected him. And as you continue to reject him, they will continue to not believe him. And they'll continue to not see. It's when we step away from the majority and we become part of that faithful remnant that our eyes are opened and we see more and more. Margie. A story. I said a story. I'm sorry. So, three specific reasons he teaches in parables. First, so that his followers would understand it. Secondly, so that the masses would not understand it. And thirdly, he says in Matthew 13, verse 14 15, to fulfill prophecy. And unto them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Hearing, you will hear, but you will not understand. Seeing, you will see, but you shall in no wise perceive. So it's not as if unbelievers cannot read the Bible and interpret it well. They can. But it doesn't mean anything to them. It doesn't move them to embrace the truths, rejoice in them, or to find hope in them. They just see it as an academic exercise. So don't think that when he says in parables it hides the truth from them that they cannot decipher what he means to say. They can decipher it, but they don't find it important. And they don't find it enthralling. And they don't find it meaningful. So, um, in Matthew 13, verse 34, uh, just turn to that for a moment. In Matthew 13, verse 34, he says, all after he speaks about these parables, public parables, he says, all these things spoke Yeshua in parables unto the multitudes. And without a parable spoke he nothing unto them. So he, to the masses, he'll be speaking in parables because of the rejection of him by the nations. And look at verse 35, quoting Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things from the foundation of the world, but they will not understand them. On the other hand, if you look at Mark, uh, and so prior, prior to, to Matthew 12, that was not true. Whenever he opened his mouth, he never spoke in parables. He just interpreted the word. Now it says that in parables is how he will speak, and he will not speak anything but parables to the masses. Why the change? Because of Matthew 12 and his rejection. In Mark's account, look at verse 33, chapter 4, verse 33. And with many such parables, he spoke the word unto them, and they were able to hear it. And without a parable, spoke he not unto them. See, he didn't speak unto them except in parables. But privately to his disciples, he expounded all things. So to the disciples, the parables were meant to clarify the truth. For the masses, it was meant to keep it from them. 
because he's been rejected and judgment is set. The purpose of the parables is to expound on God's new kingdom program resulting from the rejection of him as their messianic king and consequently the messianic kingdom. So when you read the parables, we are to keep in mind now that God is going to initiate a whole new kingdom program that had not yet been initiated precisely because Israel has rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. So let's take a look at this idea of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now before we do that, let me just mention that there are five different facets to God's kingdom program. And so here are some ideas. First of all, there is what is sometimes referred to as the eternal or universal kingdom of God. When individuals speak of this, or when the scriptures speak of this, it refers to God's rule in providence and in sovereignty, in that God is always in control. So when we think of God's eternal kingdom, the idea is that God's will permeates all that occurs. Things happen only as God allows them to happen. So, for example, things may occur according to his permissive will, such as the fall. But then things may happen according to his direct intervention and will, such as the flood. But whether things happen at, at resulting from his permissive will or from his direct encountering in a given event, his direct will, maybe call it, nothing happens outside of his will. God is never surprised. God is never taken uh, off guard. All things occur. God is fully aware of what is, what will be, what can be. So there's never anything that surprises him. So when we think of the eternal kingdom or universal kingdom, we're talking about God's sovereignty and providence in all things. So when we use the word eternal, we're talking about the timeless aspect of God's purposes. God is always in control. When we talk about the universal aspect of his kingdom, we're emphasizing the sphere or the scope that no matter where things exist, everything is within the sovereign will and control of God. And by the way, you see these uh, ideas conveyed in 1 Chronicles 29, Psalm 106, Daniel chapter 4. Now the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are synonymous terms. They do not denote different things. If you take a look at Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 4 verse 11, it says, And he said unto them, Unto you is given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without all things are done in parables. Now if you look at Luke's account in uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 10, this is the parallel passage of this, it says, And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But if you look at Matthew's account, in chapter 13, verse 11, he said, Unto you is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So they're all said in the same context, in the same moment. They're using different terms. 
Mark and Luke, I think, are recording the, uh, what Yeshua was saying. He said the kingdom of God. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. So why is his different? Remember, Matthew is writing to the Jews. And he's emphasizing Yeshua is the Messiah, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. What is typical among the Jewish people is their sensitivity to using the name of God. That's even true today. So that oftentimes you see the word God spelt G-D or L-Dash. Because there's that sensitivity not to take the Lord's name in vain. So we don't want to say the, the sacred, unpronounceable name of God. So whenever, for example, in the public reading of the scriptures and you come across the Hebrew name for God, what is read and what is written are two different things. What is written is the sacred name of God, but we don't pronounce that. In its place, we say the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. Why? So that we don't take the, the name of God in vain. Why do we write L-D? Because someone could take that piece of paper and throw it away. And if you had L-O-R-D, it's like taking God's name in vain. You're just throwing away a scrap of paper with God's name written on it. So if we write L-D, we haven't written the name of God. We've just written terms that tell us what, that's what we're referred to. Matthew does a similar thing here. Rather than saying the kingdom of God, he doesn't want to take God's name in vain and or... Because he's reading, writing for the Jewish people. He's being sensitive about that issue. So he makes reference to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua does a similar thing. He says, our God, uh, our Father who art in heaven. It's another way of saying, he's not saying, uh, he's not telling us of God's location. That phrase, our Father who is in heaven, is not a statement about his geographical place. It's a statement about his sovereignty and control. That he is overall and that he reigns and he rules. So when we say our Father who art in heaven, we're not supposed to think, oh, he's there and we're here. We're supposed to think, oh, the Lord is king and he oversees everything. So why do we pray to him? Because he's in control of everything. And thus he may do something in our behalf, maybe even better than we might ask, or he may not want to intervene because through that lack of intervention, he may be attempting to mold us and fashion us in a manner which he's desirous of, of us becoming. But when we say our Father who is in heaven, we're not saying, well, we're on the earth, he's up there, we're down here. You know, it's he who is in control of all things. He who is Lord of all creation. He who is above everything. That's what is conveyed. So the idea of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, in this context are synonymous terms and are not meant to convey different ideas. So he uses that, I think, and oftentimes in the Hebrew language we would, we would speak of God as that one who is uh, over the heavens, Hashemayim, uh, instead of utilizing God's name. So there's an eternal universal aspect to God's kingdom which has to do with his sovereignty. Secondly, there's the idea of the, the kingdom being spiritual, a spiritual kingdom. The point here is that we oftentimes speak of God's kingdom in a spiritual sense when we think of God's rule in the heart of the believer. In this context, it comprises all believers and only believers from the time of Adam to the end, end of human history. 
in this age, since the coming of the Spirit of God, in this age, the church or the body of believers, whether uh, made up of Jews and Gentiles, um, and the spiritual kingdom are synonymous. But the kingdom actually existed before the church was born in Acts chapter 2. And it will continue after the church is gone at the rapture. So, and according to Matthew 6, John 3, 3, the way to enter this kingdom is by the new birth. The, The point I'm trying to make is that when you see references to God's kingdom or to the kingdom of heaven, the context is critical in understanding what is being spoken about. So sometimes it's speaking of his eternal universal kingdom, meaning God's sovereignty. Sometimes it's speaking about this, the rule of God in our hearts, which would be a spiritual kingdom. Sometimes the term kingdom is referring to a theocratic kingdom. That is where God rules. In this context, we're talking about God's rule over Israel because Israel was a theocracy. That is to say, God ruled over Israel. The theocracy in which God ruled over Israel was established by Moses at Mount Sinai. That's why the people of Israel are referred to as the nation of Israel after Mount Sinai. Up to that point, they are the Hebrew people, the Israelites. But after Mount Sinai, they are a nation, even though at that point they're not living in any particular land and they don't have any particular government per se and they don't have any particular leaders. There's no judges, there's no kings yet. There's Moses, but it's limited. But they're still a nation because now at Mount Sinai they wielded into this theocratic kingdom. It's established as such by Moses at Mount Sinai. And the 613 commandments become the constitution of that kingdom. So that the theocracy that Israel is, is to abide by the 613 commandments. They were not intended to be a way of life for all people. They were meant to be a way of life for Israel as God's chosen people and as God's nation. So the theocratic kingdom undergoes two aspects in its history. First of all, theologians refer to it as the mediatorial kingdom. That is, it's a kingdom that God rules over Israel through mediators. So Moses was such a mediator. Joshua was such a mediator. The judges were such mediators. And the last of the mediators was Samuel, who is the last of the judges and the first of the formal prophets, and thus he's the first one to anoint Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. So they were a mediatorial kingdom in its first aspect. But in their second aspect, they were a monarchical kingdom. They had a monarch. And so now, whereas God in the past ruled through mediators, now he ruled through a, a dynasty, the house of David. That monarchical kingdom ended when Zedekiah, the last of the Davidic kings, was removed from the throne. The times of the Gentiles began as the Babylonians now took control of Israel, the land of Israel, and destroyed the temple. The times of the Gentiles will end, that's when they began, they will end when once again a theocracy is established and Israel is ruled by a Davidic king. So the times of the Gentiles will end when the Messiah returns and sits on the throne of David.
it started when the last king of, of Israel, the last Davidic king of Israel is removed and the Babylonians take control. It ends when the Messiah returns and he sits on David's throne. Exodus chapters 20, which is the Ten Commandments, through Second Chronicles chapter 36 is the history of the theocratic kingdom. Toward the end of the theocratic kingdom, the quality of the kingdom begins to decline. And thus, God, through formal speaking and writing prophets, begins to prophesy of a new facet of God's kingdom program, namely the messianic kingdom. So we've talked about the eternally universal kingdom, which is God's sovereignty. We've talked about a spiritual kingdom, which speaks about God's rule in our heart. We've talked about a theocratic kingdom where Israel is ruled by God first through mediators such as judges and others and then through kings. The fourth kind of kingdom is the messianic kingdom or the millennial kingdom. Now the term messianic kingdom is more common in Jewish circles and messianic circles. Millennial kingdom is more common in Gentile circles. The definition would be the Messiah's rule over Israel and over the whole world from Jerusalem and from the throne of David. So the term Messianic kingdom emphasizes that in this kingdom, the Messiah himself will rule directly. In that sense, it's a personal aspect because it refers directly to the Messiah. The Messianic age, the age of the Messiah, when he rules over Israel, over the nations of the world, from his throne situated in Jerusalem, which is the throne of his great-great-great-grandfather David. When we speak of the millennial kingdom, we're emphasizing the duration of his kingdom, which is a thousand years. In Revelation, was it 20 or 19? Mentioned six times that his kingdom would be a thousand years. The basis of this kingdom is found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And there are two major segments to this promise. The first is the Davidic covenant. We've said over the course of time that Israel um, is granted five covenants that God grants to Israel. They are granted the Abrahamic covenant. They are granted the land covenant. They are granted the Mosaic Covenant, they are granted the Davidic Covenant, and they are granted the New Covenant. Now, those five covenants, all of them are unconditional. That is to say, Israel is given a promise. They don't have to do anything in order to see the promise come to fruition. Abraham is told, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham is told, Leave your household and all the land that your feet stand on, I'm giving it to you. From the river Euphrates to the Wadi El Arish to the Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. All this land I'm giving to you. Abraham doesn't do anything. When the covenant is made with Abraham, Genesis 15, he's asleep. And God himself walks through the parts of the animal that are sacrificed. It's an unconditional covenant. God is binding himself to do this for Abraham and his descendants. Abraham and his descendants don't have to do anything to receive the promise. They have to do things to benefit from the promise, but they don't have to do anything for the promise to be theirs. God, in his grace, has given them this promise. The same is true 
with respect to the land promise found in the book of Deuteronomy. God says, I'm giving you this land. It's inhabited by others. I am dispersing them from you. And this land belongs to you. Now, for them to enjoy the land, they have to be obedient. And when they are exiled from the land, the land is never taken from them. They are taken from the land. The land always belongs to them. They just are exiled from it because of their disobedience. And when God restores Israel, what does he do? He brings them back to the land. So the land is always theirs. Whether they enjoy it or not or situated on it all depends on if they are faithful to God and obedient to him. But obedience does not guarantee them the land. The land is guaranteed them by God's grace. What enables them to enjoy what God has promised them is that they must be obedient to him. The third covenant, the Davidic covenant, is also an unconditional covenant. David has just committed adultery and murder. And when God calls Nathan to come to David to bring those sins to his mind, God then says to him, but you know, I'm making this covenant for you and your descendants. You will always have a son to sit on your throne forever. I will build you a house. I will build you a kingdom. I will build you a dynasty. Despite his sin. Those are blanket promises to him. And Abraham and David will experience them. And that's why Yeshua is referred to over and over again, the son of David. Because it was to David that he was promised he would have an heir on his throne. And when you... When Yeshua is conceived, the angel Gabriel says, the one that's conceived of you, in you is the one who will sit on the throne, who will, uh, be, uh, will have a dynasty, and you know, his kingdom will be... For, in, in other words, Gabriel's message is a restatement of the Davidic promise. So if you look at, I think it's 2 Samuel 7, and, or 1 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles uh, 17... You'll see that they are, or getting the, those chapters confused, but if you look at those passages, you'll see the exact same language is uttered by Gabriel when he announces the conception of Yeshua by the Holy Spirit in Mary. It's an unconditional promise. And the last is the new covenant found in Jeremiah 31 that, I, that the Lord would one day uh, implant on the heart of his people his law. They will no longer break the law because all of them will know me from the least to the greatest. They'll need no one to teach them and the law will be written on their heart. This is what Paul is talking about when he says all Israel shall be saved in Romans 11. And when the deliverer comes from Zion and will turn all ungodliness away from Jacob. The messianic kingdom then, this is my point, the messianic kingdom or the millennial kingdom depending on what term you want to use is found or on these Old Testament passages, principally two of them. I made reference to the Davidic covenant, but I wanted to put the Davidic covenant in context with the other three unconditional covenants made to Israel. The one conditional covenant made with Israel is the Mosaic law. If you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you will be judged. That covenant is fulfilled in Messiah. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 5. I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And because he fulfills it, we're no longer obligated to obey it. Because, number one, we can't obey it. And number two, it has been fulfilled in Messiah. Now, that's relevant to the Jewish people because that's what the law was given to. So that's where its relevance is found. That's a conditional covenant. 
And Messiah was the only one who was able to fulfill it because he was sinless. So these five covenants made with Israel, the principal one that deals with the Messianic kingdom is the covenant made with David. The second aspect to where these uh, passages are found or or, uh, the basis for the kingdom in the Hebrew Scriptures are the many prophecies that the prophets, writing prophets throughout the Old Testament speak of this coming kingdom. This kingdom, the Messianic age, the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, this kingdom is what was offered to the people by John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, which is different than how Yeshua is using it here, but when he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, he doesn't mean the universal kingdom in which God is sovereign because that's always true. He didn't mean the spiritual kingdom in which God will come and live in your heart, although that may very well would occur when they submitted to John's immersion. He didn't mean uh, what he meant was the messianic kingdom in which the Messiah would reign from the throne in Jerusalem is now being offered. The kingdom is at hand. Why? Because the Messiah is at hand. Therefore, he tells them to repent so they could enter the kingdom when it's offered. Repent of their sin and submit to the Messiah who is imminently coming and will come at any moment. That's what John is offering. And when Yeshua shows up, that's what he offers to them. He says the very same words that John says. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he begins to expound on the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, he's offering them his kingship. And when he does his miracles and his signs, he's offering them himself to them as the Messiah. Matthew 12, they reject him. But that's what's being offered. Not something spiritual, something tangible, something real, what the prophets said would occur when the king of Israel would appear. Now, this kingdom that John offered and Yeshua offered was rejected. As such, it was this kingdom that was withdrawn from that generation that Yeshua appeared to due to their unpardonable sin. So if you think that the nation of Israel that came out of Egypt really missed out on a great thing when God said, take the promised land, and they came back with a bad report and thus had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, the generation of Israel at the time of Messiah's coming missed out on the greatest opportunity of all. For they missed out on entering into the kingdom that the Messiah was ready to offer. And it's now been over 2,000 years since that offer was made and since the kingdom has been established. It was only 40 years for that generation to die out in the wilderness. It's been over 2,000 years since this uh, particular rejection of God's offer. Now with that in mind, now we come to the parables. It's here that the Messiah introduces a new idea attached to the kingdom of heaven. Not to be confused with any of the other ideas that the scriptures had already talked about. So I had mentioned, let me just uh, recap them as I'm just trying to get my note here. Um, 
we mentioned the, the eternal kingdom, the sovereignty of God, the spiritual kingdom, God's rule in the heart, the theocratic kingdom, God's rule through mediators or a king. And we mentioned the messianic kingdom that the prophet said will come when the Messiah sits on the throne. Now he's offering a new aspect to God's kingdom. He refers to it as a mystery kingdom. The reason why there's this new kingdom is because the unpardonable sin now prompts him to introduce a new form of the kingdom that had not yet been talked about at all. And that's why he refers to it as a mystery. If you look at Mark chapter 4 verse 11, unto you is given the mystery of the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 13 verse 11, unto you is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter 8, unto you is given to know, verse 10, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, when you see the word mystery, it does not mean something hard to understand. It does not mean something difficult to unravel, like a P.D. James novel, or an Inspector Lewis, or you know, one of those things that you see on PBS where you wonder, what did he say? In the Bible... A mystery is something that was unrevealed in the Old Testament is now revealed for the first time in the New Testament. So this mystery form of the kingdom is, is simply another way of saying a new form of the kingdom that had not yet been made known before. It's something new. Why would it be new? Because Israel has just rejected the Messiah. And thus, all kinds of new things are happening. Yeshua is teaching in a new way, parables, not straight. He's doing his miracles for a different reason. Training, not to demonstrate he's the Messiah. He's now telling people, don't say anything about your, the miracle. Whereas before he said, proclaim and let people know what you have done. So things have changed. And it's changed because the circumstances have changed. By the way, this idea of an unrevealed truth now being made known, this is exactly how Paul uses it, Ephesians chapter 3, and in Colossians chapter 1, the same, same words are used. In fact, we don't have time to look at this, but the scriptures speak of eight divine mysteries, new things that have not been known before are only for the first time known in light of Messiah's coming and rejection. And the scriptures speak of two satanic, Mysteries that had not been known before. You read them in the book of Revelation. The mystery kingdom, as I said, is referred to in Mark's passage, verse 11, Luke's passage, verse 10, and Matthew, verse 11. So, I think, in a word, the definition of this mystery kingdom might best be described by the word Christendom. Not by the word Christianity, but by the word Christendom. And it would thus refer to people anywhere in the world who claim loyalty to Yeshua, whether it's genuine or not. It would then be, it began with Israel's rejection of the Messiahship of Yeshua. It ends with Israel's acceptance of his Messiahship when he returns. The parables that are given in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, in paragraph 64 of the Harmony, lay out the outworking of this mystery form of the kingdom, what it is like. And in these parables, Yeshua uses a variety of, of symbols. Some are from the Hebrew Scriptures, but some are brand new. 
and those new ones he defines himself. So in Mark verse 13, understanding the first parable is the key to understanding the rest of the parables, he says. And Yeshua will give detailed explanations of the first and third parables. And he defines what these symbols mean as well. So let's talk about the parables. First of all, he tells us the parable of the sower. Sower went out to uh, to sow seeds. Four basic points he makes about this parable. Remember, the parables are meant to tell us something about this new mystery form of the kingdom that had not existed before. He tells us four things. Number one, this age in which the kingdom will be manifested, this new revealed entity, this mystery kingdom age, first of all, will be characterized by the sowing of the gospel seed, the sowing of the good news, the disseminating of the truth of the good news. Well, that was not done before because the good news doesn't occur until the Messiah comes. Secondly, he says, this mystery kingdom age not only be characterized by the sowing of seed, so he talks about a sower went out to see, to sow seed, but the mystery kingdom age will be marked by different preparations of soil. Not all parts of the world will be as receptive as other parts. So today, China is incredibly receptive. Probably the largest number of believers has found that country. While you just go across the China Sea near to J- Japan, very close. People are not receptive at all. You go to a continent like Africa, which is considered the most believing continent in the world, and you go to North America or Europe, and it's very dead. Some places are more receptive than others. The soil is more fertile than in other areas, and sometimes the fertility of the soil changes at various times. During this mystery form of the kingdom, there's going to be a sowing of the truth of the Messiah and the sowing of the seed of Messiah is going to be received positively in some places and not so positively in other places thirdly he says the mystery age of the kingdom will be marked by four different responses to the offer some will respond as illustrated by the seed falling on the wayside that is to say they're not going to believe it and the seed will die Some, he says, the seed will fall on rocky ground. There's belief, but roots don't grow. And what Yeshua tells us is that it means that they're not rooted in the word. And so there will be those that will believe, but they will remain immature, struggling, and not getting, be able to land their feet. And he says it's it's due to a lack of understanding of the word. The third thing he says is some of the seed will fall on thorny ground or ground that's choked by thorns. He says that people will believe it, but they will fail to apply its truths. And thus, the word doesn't grow deeply. So here's the point. One cannot apply what one does not know rightly. And so people oftentimes apply the Word of God, but they apply it wrongly because they, they haven't understood it rightly. But knowing God's Word alone is not enough. One must also apply it to one's life. So you have to know it to apply it, but you have to apply 
what you know. So one could be filled with all knowledge, but if we don't put it into practice, we're going to be stunted in our growth. On the other hand, there's good ground response in which there's belief that's rooted in the word that's applied. That's the challenge. To number one, devote oneself to understand the word of God and be devoted to the spirit of God who unfolds its meaning and enlightens it to, to us. That is why it's so important to read. Even though I know a lot, uh, m- many people don't like to read, God has chosen to reveal himself in words. And if you don't like to read, then you're depriving yourself of what is essential to being a good plant. You have to read. And you can't only read the Bible. And the reason I say that is because God has built the body of Messiah on the apostles and prophets and teachers. And the teachers are not just the ones we know of in our day and age. The teachers go back to when he founded the body of believers. We're talking about writers in the first centuries, in the second centuries, in the third centuries. We are depriving ourselves of great knowledge when we deprecate the people that God has given gifts of teaching to in subsequent generations. They are as important to us as the contemporaries in our own day that we know greatly. And in my opinion, are more important because the people we read in our own day and age are just are insipid about their faith and how they communicate it. It takes work, I understand all that, and it takes time, and it takes diligence, but that's what Yeshua is telling us here. If you want to be well-rooted, it's not enough to have received the seed. You need to have soil that is conducive for growth. What is that soil? It's soil that's devoted to the word and the application of its truth. And the only way you can really know God's word is not by sitting down at a desk alone and opening the Bible and reading it and letting God tell you what it means. God did not give great teachers throughout history for that. He gave us great teachers throughout history so that we would appreciate these gifted men that are his gifts to us. And thus we should be respectful of them. We don't agree with everything about them. But they're people that God had given gifts of teaching to and who have worked uh, marvelously in, who have written uh, important works. Why are they important? Because God's understanding God's word is made known to us through it. That's my take on that. But that's what this parable is about. The mystery form of the kingdom is going to be marked by the disseminating of the truth and it's going to fall on good soil, bad soil, better soil, and best soil. We want to be best soil, which means we take the word, read it, we utilize teachers of all ages and backgrounds to better understand that word. We don't agree with everybody, but we read discerningly so that we are made better aware of God's truth. And then we have to be diligent and courageous to apply it. If the Lord had to say to, Mo, to Joshua, I don't know, eight or ten times in one chapter, be courageous, be courageous, be very, very courageous, do not think that walking in his ways is easy. Right? I mean, it is challenging. And decisions 
are, have to be made sometimes that are frightening. And those decisions, when they are made, and we trust God and we get out the other side, all of a sudden the root of that seed, man, has really grown deep. And now a good thing begins to grow. Okay. Secondly, he gives us this parable of the seed that grows by itself. That's found in Mark 26. He's the only one that records that parable. But the seed in this, the point he's making about this new kingdom era, this uh, mystery form of the kingdom, is that the seed grows by itself. The seed will spring to life of its own accord. Inexplicably, the growth of the seed does not depend, depend on the sower. What I think he's illustrating is the mystery of regeneration. The gospel message is proclaimed. If accepted, life springs. How does that happen? Nobody knows. It's like the wind. It blows. Where to come from? Where to go? Nobody knows. But we, have fi- we feel the effects. That's what new life is. We see the change, sometimes little, sometimes monumental. We see that. We can observe that. But how did it happen? Well, how did God do that? Nobody knows. It's a miracle of God in which he breathed on our hearts and all of a sudden, boom, there's real life that in a place where it didn't ex- exist before. We can see the change, but we cannot explain them. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, he gives us the parable of the tares. This mystery form of the kingdom, the true sowing will be imitated by a false counter-sowing. There will be some that will be sowing bad seed in the same harvest place of good seed. There will be a side-by-side development as a result of the two sowings. And the judgment at the end of the mystery kingdom age will separate the two. The wheat will enter the kingdom, the tares will not. But we will not always be able to discern which is which. And so he says during this mystery age of the kingdom, a new thing is going to happen now. There's going to be a sowing of truth. There's going to be good soil and bad soil. The importance of responding to the truth and applying it, understanding it and applying it. There's going to be uh, a good and bad growing up side by side. And the distinguishing of them is not going to always be easy. So we have to wait for the end of the age when God will stand up and the wheat will enter and the tares will not. Yeshua then gives us in Mark 4 and Matthew 13 the parable of the mustard seed. There will be abnormal external growth in the mystery kingdom until it becomes, I think what he's saying is, a monstrosity. Not a good thing, a monstrosity. The monstrosity becomes a resting place for birds. Now, if we take what Yeshua, how Yeshua utilized the term birds earlier in the first parable, birds were agents of the evil one that took the seed and took it away from us. So if we're going to be consistent and say, okay, that's how he means to use it, well, then this tree is not a good thing. It's a monstrosity. It grows out of control. If the mystery form of the kingdom is what I refer to as Christendom with all kinds of, you know, that would include cults. It includes all kinds of uh, religious groups, uh, all of which have some good things and, and some bad things, and others have very bad things. But it's, it becomes unwieldy. And uh, so when we look at what existed, say, in the first century, where there was a simplicity uh, to, to the uh, body of believers, today it's unwieldy. And so we can just walk around here, you know, in a 10-mile radius, and we probably will find like 80, oh, that's probably an overstretch, 30 different denominations. It's unwieldy. It's not to say all of them are bad, good, or indifferent. It's only to say that it's 
become a monstrosity. It's sort of out of control. And the evil one has ways of utilizing that complexity of things for our demise. Doesn't have to, but can. So he's telling us, this is what this kingdom age, in light of my rejection, is going to be characterized by. Miss Luke, can I just try to get through? Because I'm not doing a good job of it. Um, he says, for not only the parable of the mystery form uh, of the mustard seed, but then he has this parable of the leaven. Oftentimes, women in Scripture are used symbolically, I shouldn't say oftentimes, but on occasion, women are used symbolically to represent religious entities, good or bad. For example, Israel is seen as the wife of the Lord. The body of Messiah is called the bride of Messiah. On the other hand, you've got the Jezebel of Revelation 2.20 and you've got the great harlot of Revelation 17. could be good or bad. But we do know leaven is used symbolically for sin. Matthew's Gospel, it speaks of a particular type of sin. Matthew's Gospel, leaven, leaven speaks of false doctrine. Beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. I think the point he's making is that false teaching will be introduced into the mystery kingdom, resulting in corruption of doctrine. It's interesting that he mentions three measures of wheat. In our day and age, we've got the Roman Catholic Church, the Ethan Orthodox Church, and Protestantism are the main three main branches, uh, religious entities that represent Christendom. All three, to a lesser or greater degree, manifest some form of false doctrine, in my opinion. And so false teaching will be introduced into this mystery form of the kingdom. He speaks, uh, a sixth parable he gives is the parable of the hidden treasure. Now we know in the Old Testament the treasure represents Israel. That's very clear. Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 14, Psalm 135. It teaches that in spite of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, there will always be a remnant that will be saved out of Israel. There will always be Jews coming to Yeshua the Messiah during the period of the mystery form of the kingdom. But there will be a faithful remnant. You see, uh, you see this in... Um, Matthew 13, verse 44. But then he says, he gives the parable of the, great, the pearl of great price, Matthew 13, 45 and 46. We don't have a clear statement as to what the pearl represents, but since the treasure represents the Jews who come to faith during the mystery kingdom age, it seems reasonable to understand the pearl representing Gentiles who come to faith. Pearls originate in the sea, and the sea is used symbolically in, many pla- in some places, to represent the Gentiles. Daniel 7, Revelation 17 speaks of the Gentile nations symbolized by the seas. The eighth parable he gives is the parable of the net. If the sea symbolizes the world of the Gentiles, then it would appear that the age, this mystery form of the kingdom, this age, that age will end with the judgment of the Gentiles. Certainly, Two important passages on the judgment of the Gentiles are found in the Scripture. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, and Matthew chapter 25, 31 to, verse 31 to 46, where you have uh, the sheep will be on my right hand and my, the goats on my left. When you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, is a judgment of the Gentiles based on their treatment of Israel. The righteous Gentiles will enter the Messianic kingdom. The unrighteous will be excluded. And then he gives a parable of the householder, Matthew 13, verses 51 to 53. He says, some aspects of the mystery form of the kingdom have points of similarity with the other four facets that we talked about of the kingdom. 
But then there are other facets that are brand new, never seen before, hence they are a mystery. So if we summarize these parables, and we'll call it here, if we summarize it, you have, first of all, the parable of the sower. And so the sowing of the gospel seed throughout this age will be characteristic of this mystery form of the kingdom. The second parable is the seed that was sown, and the sown seed has an inner energy that springs to life of its own accord. And thus God miraculously can take a message, and it can bring result in eternal life. This mystery form of the kingdom will be a kingdom during which the seed is sown, the good news message of Messiah is sown, despite Israel's rejection. The messianic age, in other words, is not will not dawn. And thus, the king will not be sitting there on the throne of Jerusalem, on the throne of David, for everyone to see. Anyone just go to Jerusalem, you'll see the Messiah, the king. Or as Isaiah says, a road will go from Egypt to Assyria, and those who will travel on it will come to Jerusalem. That period is not going to start. But a new era will commence, a new form of the kingdom. Not like that that is already spoken of. It will be a time in which the gospel message is going to be Uh, shared throughout. This message is going to be uh, disseminated. That's why he's training his disciples. They're going to be the ones to take it. Remember, even up until this time, Israel hasn't taken the message of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the world. They've basically uh, kept it, as God had told them, unto themselves, and nations would come to them. But now things are changing. This is a new thing. The people who will embrace this truth are going to take it away from the land of Israel. It's going to be taken out to the four corners of the earth. And it's going to be taken out, not just by Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, upon whomever the soil is fertile, on whoever the heart is responsive. It will be Gentiles of all kinds of backgrounds, from all over the earth. That is something new and different that this kingdom age will be characterized by. And during this kingdom age, there's going to be a false sowing that's going to go on. The evil one, utilizing his agents, will be mimicking what we will be doing. And there will be those who will be cultists, those who will be false religionists, those who will be heretics. Be what what they are, they will be uh, potentially leading astray, even if it were possible, the very elect, Yeshua says. So there will be a true sowing with a false sowing. Now, the fourth and fifth parables are the result of that third parable of the imitating of the various sowing. The fourth parable is the mustard seed, that the mystery kingdom will get huge proportions. So the mystery form of the kingdom is not the church, per se, because it includes unbelievers, tears. So it's not just the body of Messiah. The mystery form of the kingdom is something bigger that even has tears with it that we have to wait for the end of the age to reveal. And that's why there's that passage. Yeshua says, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that today? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. They were tears. But we didn't know that. We thought they were doing just like we were doing in the name of Messiah. 
That's part of the mystery form of the kingdom. It will not be so easy. Before it was easy. Israel was Israel. Their God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We had Dagon. We had Baal. We had Marduk. We had whatever Egyptian gods. It was very easy. Things were lined up and separated. What he's saying is it's not going to be so easy during the kingdom age. Christendom is going to become a monstrosity. It's going to grow out of proportions. There's going to be all kind of denominations, all kind of cults. And you've got to be on your toes with this. That's what he's telling us. And it will be marked by doctrinal corruption. Things will not remain pure. And so parables 6 and 7 are the result of the first two, the sowing of the seed and the soil. He says, but despite that, Jews will come to faith. There will be a treasure, a hidden treasure. There will be Jews in every age coming to faith. They may not appear like Jews, you know, they will convert to maybe some Christian denomination of some sort in certain ages, middle ages. Maybe they lose their Jewish identity to us, but not to God. In our day and age, we're seeing a resurrection of Jewish identity and faith in the Messiah in Israel like it never has existed since the Messiah walked the earth with the disciples. That's why it's such a marvelous thing to be a part of a Messianic congregation. We, we are, in a sense, creating a newer thing. It's not brand new right now, but it's a newer thing that hasn't been a part of Christendom, quote-unquote, for a very long time. And so there will be Jews that will come to faith. There not only will be Jews, but also there's going to be Gentiles, and there will be more Gentiles than there will be Jews. And thus the age will end, this mystery form of the kingdom age, it will end with the judgment of the Gentiles. Because at the end of the mystery form of the kingdom, when the Messiah comes... All the Jews that will be there when the Messiah comes will be saved. All Israel will be saved. So there's no judgment on the Jewish nation because when the Messiah returns, they're all going to be embracing him. The judgment on the Jewish people will occur prior to his coming. And that's what the whole tribulation period is about. Not the only thing it's about, but it's about judgment on wickedness and wicked ones. And it's a purging of the Jewish people. That's why it's called in Jeremiah 32, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's why Zechariah says two-thirds of the people of Israel will be cut off and die. One-third will come through like gold is refined in fire. That's why he says in Zechariah 14 that Jerusalem will be taken, the city ravished, the uh, inhabitants destroyed. That's why Hosea says it will be after three days Israel will cry out to the Lord and he will respond to them. And that's why Isaiah, Isaiah 53, yes, it's about the suffering servant, but it's about It's actually a confessional. It's the national confession. Isaiah 53 is just the exact opposite of Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is the national rejection. Isaiah 53 is the national acceptance of the Messiah. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's a confession. We're confessing that we thought he was smitten and stricken of God and afflicted. But now we know he was stricken for our transgressions. He was wounded for our sins. And the chastisement of our peace was laid on him. We didn't know that before. We thought he was dying because of his sin. Now we know he's dying for our sin. Now we know why he went as a sheep to the slaughter and and all of those things. It's the national confession. So before the Messiah comes... Israel will recite Isaiah 53 and mean it. That's what Isaiah 53 is. It is Isaiah 53 that will spark the return of the Messiah. And that's why the Lord says, you will not see me anymore, Matthew 20, 
23. You will not see me anymore until you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The return of the Messiah hinges on Israel's national confession of their sin. What was their sin? The national rejection of the Messiah when he came. Their sin was not the death of Messiah. That was Rome's sin in that they crucified him. That was a Roman execution. Israel's sin was Matthew 12, a year and a half before he dies. Their sin was the rejection of Yeshua as the Messiah. What will be their acceptance? Isaiah 53, their national confession of their sinfulness. Now, fortunately, some of us who are Jews are already acknowledging that. And that's the treasured possession that Jews in every age, there's always a faithful remnant. We happen to be it in our generation. There have been it in previous generations. There will be it in succeeding generations if he doesn't come before. And then lastly, so the end of the age will end with the judgment of the Gentiles and the righteous ones who loved the Jewish Messiah and therefore loved his people will enter and the unrighteous will be excluded. And thus he concludes by saying this mystery kingdom has similarities and dissimilarities we up with the other four facets of God's program. Whereas the other, one of the facets had to do with spiritual life, well, it will have that similarity. There will be spiritual life in the heart of other people. But remember, the kingdom form also has tares. Not everyone in, the, in mystery form has spiritual life, but some do. That is the treasured possession and the pearls of great price, but not the tares. But they're still part of the mystery form of the kingdom because it is unique and therefore ought not to be confused with what we normally think of when we think of heaven or when we think of the Messianic age or think of the kingdom. This is a new thing. Why? Because a new thing has happened. The Messiah was rejected by his people. So I hope this sort of, this is a little verbose and a little long, but I hope it sort of helps to reinforce that when you read the Gospels, you can't just read a passage and say, oh, I guess we shouldn't tell anyone what we did because he said, you know, be silent. Or why would he tell them to be silent? Doesn't he want everyone to know what's going on? When you put it in the, its historical context, it begins to make sense what is transpiring, what's happening. So let me pray, and then if there are questions, um, I'd be happy to stick around and answer them. And those of you that need to go uh, can do so because... Oi, it's 9, 9.05. So I apologize. Because I stopped pretty, started almost on time. It was like around 7.30 something. So we've been going an hour and a half. Yikes, without a break or a drink. Father, we thank you for this night. Some marvelous things that we are able to see in your word. May you help bring it to remembrance to us. And as we look at your word, may we not be satisfied with what we understand on the surface. But may we probe its depths. And may we utilize teachers from the past and present to help us do just that. And then, Lord, move on our hearts that we would apply these truths in concrete ways in our lives that we might grow deeper in our faith and thus become more mature as believers of our Messiah. For we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, if you need to go, please, uh, you can. (laughs) Okay.